2: Welcome to the Damcasters. I'm your host, Matt Bone. As the RAF looked to rearmament in the years following Hitler's rise to power, the youngest service had to face the growing pains of any organisation that required rapid expansion. The issue they faced was that the decisions they took would leave them with the tools to fight the next war. While the popular memory of the Spitfire summer of 1940 is fixed in many people's minds, the route to it was torturous, and the focus of the RAF's leadership was on the bomber, not the fighter. In his new book, Rearming the RAF for the Second World War, historian Adrian Phillips looks at the political factors that would give the RAF the Spitfire Hurricane in Lancaster, but also would mean it would enter the fight with battles, gladiators, and Whitley's. To set the scene, I asked Adrian just what sort of force the RAF was when attention turned to equipping it for the next conflict.
1: It was pretty much two air forces. One was the actual working air force out in India and the other remote bits of the empire, which was doing a counterinsurgency job, uh, which was live and which, to a great extent, hadn't really changed since the, the very beginning of the 1920s. And the other one was in the jargon the Metropolitan Air Force, which was the UK based fighters and bombers that were supposed to protect Britain, which had been built up on pretty much a theoretical only basis, and was really the, the showpiece of the independent Royal Air Force.
2: And I think that's where things start getting really interesting, is as you sort of go into great detail, Trenchard Came out of, you know, he in, uh, inherited the command. You make that great line about him being the stepfather of the RAF as opposed to the father itself, and he was a, the striking force commander. So his his mindset was very much bombers striking. So that's where him, along with many other air forces, are putting their stead as they start looking towards the next conflict.
1: I very very much so, and, and there, there is it... a mixture of. Office politics in that the bombers are the big thing that keep the RAF an autonomous force and a vision of what the next war is going to be like, which nobody had an absolutely clear forecast of. And, but certainly most people, when
2: pushed, would have said the next war is going to be a bomber war. And let's delve into this a little bit. So what were the sort of internal conflicts in the beginning 30s there as they they start defining what this next war is going to be? What are the sort of differing requirements from each of the commands? Because you have, well, let's break them down. What commands make up the RAF at the time that rearmament starts being discussed?
1: The The crucial ones are bomber command and then fighter command. Being utterly cynical, coastal command is there to keep the admirals a bit happy. not spend too much money on them, Uh, and training command is obviously a a necessary adjunct. One of the striking things is that when uh, the Air Defence of Great Britain is split split into bomber and fighter command in 1936, um, the head of ADGB, Air Marshal Steele, becomes merely the head of bomber command, which you'd think was kind of a demotion, but there was no sign of that. Bomber Command was really the the big ticket, the high-profile heart of the Royal Air Force. Fighter Command was kind of ambiguous and something that the air staff was a little uncertain about, but Bomber, Bomber Command was the, the thing that
2: was going to do the RAF's big job uh, and win the war. And that's very much the same as all the other air forces in the world are thinking because you've got Mitchell espousing the same thing in the States, Um, the the duet thing, which doesn't really come into most people's thinking until much later. But you then have politicians like Stanley Baldwin saying the bomber is always going to get through. So it is very much being seen as... Well, both from a propaganda perspective and from an actual perspective, that's where all the focus and where the money is going to go, which is where most of this conversation is going to be.
1: I think the big Uh, exception, of course, is Germany, hmm. where certainly there is a strong strategic dimension to the thinking of um, Luftwaffe, but in practice... It's built up in a completely different way, certainly to the Royal Air Force. It's a mobile, flexible force, which, in practice, is attached to army units. Yes, it has got strategic bombing as one of its missions, but it's also configured for maximum flexibility and to operate along with the army. Um which includes providing direct support for army ground operations, uh, which is utterly different to the way the Royal Air Force was being structured.
2: Is that because the RAF are thinking that they will be essentially defending an island nation as opposed to fighting more of a land war with the, the expectation of France holding on?
1: Yeah, and certainly along with the Stanley Baldwin, the bomber will always get through sentiment, is... Uh, The fact that, uh, unspoken mostly, but taken as an absolute fact, that Britain would no longer be sending hundreds of thousands of uh, soldiers over to the continent to get killed. And that was uh, almost one of the givens of British defence planning right up to about March 1939. Uh, So... The reason why the RAF is not geared up for army support begins with the assumption that the army won't really
2: be doing much in the next war. And I guess for that generation of politicians who'd who'd fought in the First World War, that was something to avoid, wasn't it? It it was very much on their mindset being haunted by that experience. Yeah, the,
1: the number of politicians who were prepared to accept the risk of war of any kind was tiny. Um, In in practice, Winston Churchill. The the anti-war instinct was so universal and so strong um, that it was reluctantly and painfully that the politicians started to, to rearm in 1934 when they worked out that Hitler was actually a menace.
2: So let's, let's dig into this a little bit, because we've got a couple dimensions there. We, we mentioned it earlier on about how the RAF is being used as colonial policing. So it is very much focused as a bomber force. Most of the frontline aircraft have bombs on them of some sort, not like we would come to understand in the years to come, very, very small payloads. But you've also got the fleet air arm thrown in there as well. And that is a sort of inter-service hot potato in one of Trenchard's great Coo's to get his hands on that, wasn't it?
1: Well, it started off that way when the Royal Air Force was formed in 1918, uh, at a stage when carrier aviation was in its absolute infancy. Uh, nobody was in a position to foretell just how important the carrier-borne aircraft was going to be as the, the main weapon in na- naval warfare. And that would have involved a vision vision of forecasting that just was not there. So compared to the US Navy and the Imperial Japanese Navy, because they didn't have the, an air arm to play with, the British sea lords really didn't have that same vision. So... Uh, this is one of the great weaknesses of the Royal Navy as it goes into the Second World War: that its uh, its air arm is very, very underdeveloped, both in terms of the kit it has uh, and also the um, the philosophy and uh, and operational planning.
2: So, with the sort of focus starting to look to the next conflict, one of the things your book does very well is break down each of those sort of planning stages and sort of procurement rounds that go. That go into it, but what is this sort of situation that the RAF goes through as they start to rearm as Hitler comes to the ascendancy from 1933 on? The the various scheme lettered schemes that you go into detail in in, in your book because they seem to follow on, but then change the playing surface a little bit each time they they go along. What, what are the sort of basic requirements that they're trying to follow? Well, there are there are two things. First of
1: all, to modernise the Royal Air Force, and secondly, to strengthen it. So, in the very early early schemes, one of the big priorities is to replace the biplane bombers, the the Harts, which have been the heart of it wasn't Bomber Command in those days, but the RAF's bomber bomber force. So, the first first thing to do was get get in urgently something that was better uh, than, in effect, First World War-grade aeroplanes. Uh, and then the next thing, which was linked, was to build up the strengths of the, the Air Force. Um, I suspect, though, that somewhere along the way you got people missing out what was really, really needed to be done. Uh, I'm afraid the, the fairy battle is the, is the key part of it because uh, when you scratch, scratch the surface, the fairy battle was simply uh, a hawk, Hawker heart built according to modern te- uh, modern te- technology for the day. So it was, it was an improvement on the heart, <coughs> which was certainly needed, but it was not an aeroplane which was going to fight any war that anybody could imagine. Yes, the, the poor old fairy battle.
2: Got the worst, Merling. Got the short end of just about every stick. But um, we won't get it. We won't yeah. get that. It. it gets beat. It gets beaten enough, doesn't it? One of the things that I've, I I loved in the book is the the intelligence aspect. This trying to figure out just how big the Luftwaffe is. And then that being used to make the RAF as big as it possibly can be as well. Would you be able to talk to that a little bit? The sort of the games that are played on the various visits from sort of Milch coming over here and and the RAF going to Germany because it's um, it's classic sleight of hand that sort of plays plays into people's hands because they're willing to believe it.
1: Absolutely. And it goes right back to one of the most unfortunate parts of Rearmament, which is the fact that it was the RAF itself and the person of the Chief of the Air Staff, Sir Edward Ellington, who didn't think that the Germans would be able to build up a strong air force. Um, And this was just because he thought it was impossible. There was no intelligence behind it. Um, and, in fact, what, he was working against what intelligence that there, there was available. The next stage, as that uh, resistance got broken down, was to look at the Luftwaffe essentially as a bomber force. So the way the data on the Luftwaffe got processed through the British system was to look at it in terms of something that, whose job was to bomb London flat. Which was not the case, but um, that's how, that's how the equation was uh, was twisted. And then uh, the Germans started playing games, as you you mentioned Erhard Milch, and uh, he was the guy who was in charge of the nuts and bolts of building up the Luftwaffe to a much greater extent than than Goering, and he realised that the British had got the wind in their cells and were building up a big air force. So he thought, well, let's calm them down. Let's pretend that we're not building as large an air force as we are. So he this great charade when he whisks some visiting air marshals off and... With a great ceremony, opens his safe and brings out his books of the, the fiction. It, afraid to say that this struck a chord with me because I used to many many years ago uh, be a, uh, an investment analyst covering German companies, and it was the great danger sign when any company did this kind of charade and pantomime that you knew you were being lied to, uh, but sadly these these guys didn't, um, so. What happened was that uh, the, the scheme that, it, that was being worked on at the time, I think it was Scheme H, um, got, got pulled uh, in Cabinet by the, uh, by, the Air, by the Air Minister just because the, uh, the supposed assumptions of Luftwaffe size behind
2: it were uh, had been knocked on the head by Milk's little uh, performance. So how was that impacting those numbers? Because you, you go through the quite set, criteria of number of bombers to number of fighters because the it's very much weighed toward bombers and how is how is each of these intelligence briefings charades from Milton when, when he does his thing how does that impact what that ratio is going to be the brutal fact
1: is that the the raf between the wars possibly well into the war had a very low opinion of fighters and there is a great line from trenchard saying in effect that fighters will do to scare off the, quote, rabbits amongst the German bombers. It's almost as though this is a concession that the Royal Air Force is forced to make to keep the politicians and the public amused. There is very little sense that there is actually a defined military task of inflicting casualties on attacking German bombers that will... Uh, reduce the tonnage of bombs falling on on Britain, uh, and ideally stop the attacks happening at all. I'm afraid one of the weakest parts of the the the, the RAF's planning before the war that uh, at the top level of the air staff, um, there's no very clear idea what fighters should be doing. The great Mercy is, of course, the the first commander of Fighter Command, Hugh Dowding, did. He fully understood his job. He knew what he needed to do with the the RAS fighters, and he
2: did it very, very well, fortunately. And it's sort of a stroke of luck. He was in the technology branch before he took command of of Fighter Command as well, wasn't he? So he, he knew what was coming through in the pipeline, whether it be what became RDF, things like that. He knew what the tools were that were coming to put them together.
1: Absolutely. I know the crucial thing was RDF, radar, as we know now. So he, he, he'd he seen it developing. Um, and so he was in a position to, to ride out the scepticism. And there was outright scepticism about RDF um, in the uh, the high reaches of the air staff. And the, uh, the other crucial thing about what Dowding did was technologically, certainly, RDF was the key tool, but the vital thing is that it was integrated into a very thoroughly thought-out command and control system by which fighter-command aircraft would respond to a very well-structured control system into which RDF and other reporting systems would be fed to create a coherent picture of the aerial battlefield uh, that the commanders could work with. And as well as RDF, you had direction finding so that the ground controllers knew where the RAF's fighters were and you had VHF radio by which they could be instructed. So, yes, RDF was the the very big part of the technological picture, but A, it was merely one of three crucial technologies, and above all, it was integrated into this powerful and robust command and control system.
2: There's a section in your book which is sort of comparing and contrasting that with how bomber command are starting to, to ramp up, and it's very stark that bomber command as a force are not thinking along those Sort of strategic levels. They're very much thinking about numbers and, and targets on a tactical level. Was there anything done to address that, or was that just left to go because they were a bomber force, they were going to smash through and, and bomb Germany to cinders? i afraid
1: to say the, the, the interpretation you have to come up with is that as far as the RAF top brass went, it was so self-evidently a truth that bombers were going to win the war that you didn't really need to think how they were going to win the war. <laughs> it was it was very much uh, a single piece of hardware-driven way of thinking that, provided you had the bombers there with the range, um, the defensive armament, and the bomb capacity, that was what you needed, uh, and all you needed. So it was uh, uh,
2: serious military thinking was pretty much absent. Which which is remarkable, considering what they were proposing to do. Something that had never been done at scale, and yet there's a lack of application to the, the thought of how it was going to be done. It
1: is. It is bizarre. And uh, one of the most distinguished aviation historians, Williamson Murray, made the point that given the, the RAF's raison d'etre strategic bombing, it is very curious indeed how little thought was actually given to the, the military practice of it. I mean, In fairness, the the task of modernising and expanding the bomber force was a pretty huge one to begin with. Uh, So that was a a very major management uh, job to to put that through. So, yes, you can see how uh, other things got left out, but that's still, I'm afraid, no excuse.
2: One of the things as well that I found fascinating in the book is this thought of rearming without looking like you're rearming, because you need to build this force up and we're talking is it quadrupling the size of the RAF was it initially
1: oh I, 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 I lose I, track of it, exactly yeah. the number it, yeah. it's make,
2: it's making it big but how to do that without looking like you're doing that I thought that was a, a very fascinating sort of subsection and it was in one of the one of the schemes that you talk about is that something that's very much on their mind that they want to do this but not sort of rattle the cages of anyone again
1: this is one of the great question marks the thinking of the royal air force in practice one of deterrence and deterrence only it's very difficult to get any hard and fast source but quite naturally her people did, did were not hoping that the, the 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 material was ever going to be used in combat Um, And certainly the politicians, Neville Chamberlain above all, had great hopes that war could be entirely avoided. So at an extreme uh, analysis, you might say the Royal Air Force was being built up as a parade force rather than a combat force. The other thing, which is, of course, very relevant, is how the bomber gets depicted as a defensive weapon Uh, because this is part of the rhetoric that keeps coming through again and again, that the only way to defend is by having bombers, is by the threat of counter-bombing. But this is a defensive thing. How sincere any of this is, it's very, very difficult to tell. But um, the notion that it was actually fighter aircraft which was going to provide the defence was absent. As I said earlier on, the vision of the war, both amongst the politicians and the the air staff, was it was going to be a bombing war. Uh, the exact role of fighters was kind of in, indeterminate, and it's only in the immediate aftermath of Munich, uh, where Neville Chamberlain is trying to preserve peace for the the peace for our time, that he negotiated with Hitler, that he actually says. Actually, it's a bit funny this idea that uh, we're building bombers to defend ourselves. Surely they are offensive weapons. Um, which is a piece of joined up thinking which was
2: hugely absent from for any of the uh, rearmament up till then. We're just going to take a short break for a quick message from our friends.
1: Hello there, I'm Matthew Moss from Fighting on Film, the podcast for war movie fans. From the beaches of Normandy to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we aim to cover it. Featuring top guests from the world of entertainment, historians and industry insiders, we bring you a unique look at the films from our favourite genre. Listen wherever you find your podcasts or find us at fightingonfilm.com.
2: And we're back with Adrian Phillips discussing his book, Rearming the RAF for the Second World War. Let's get to that important date of Munich in September 1938, because one of the things that happens is there is a phased standing up of the three forces. And in the RAF, it doesn't go well for the prime service, does it? Fighter command spins up quite well. (laughs) but Bomber Command, not so much. What was the sort of reaction to that as the, the, the two main parts of the, the Air Force reacting to the call? And it was, it was noted,
1: but internally, I don't think there is any sign that uh, any of the, the difference in performance uh, between fighter and bomber commands ever got outside the Royal Air Force. And it was certainly part of something that had been observed uh, even before Munich. That and partly because um, switching to multi-engine, big-crew bombers was was a, a much larger task. Uh, bomber Command was was lagging in terms of the the implementation of re- rearmament, and this continued right right up till September 1939. I don't think anybody spotted that fighter command had actually done as good a job as it had uh, during the Munich crisis. Nobody was was following on from that, saying, well, maybe we could be exaggerating what damage the Luftwaffe could be doing to London because we've actually got a pretty decent fighter defence force, which was objectively the case. But it was it's one of those instances where perception of
2: what an armed force had lagged well behind the reality. So there was no analysis done in that lull between Munich and the start of the war the following year of of how they actually performed in in doing this? No, no,
1: the... the, And what what happened immediately after Munich is that, obviously, with war that much closer, there was going to be more money for the armed services. And there is a great moment when Kingsley Wood, the, the air minister, says to the air marshals, now's the moment, my colleagues are on your side, open your mouths jolly wide. Um, <laughs> now... Part of the legend is that after Munich there was a big switch to fighters and certainly it was planned to go from 600 fighters to 800. That's one part of it, but the other part of it is that it was after Munich that the RAF said, this is the moment to to follow our goal and go to an all-heavy bomber force. Uh It's part of the, the picture which is extremely important and often... Well, I, I'm not sure how well, well known it is. But the RAF intended to migrate to a complete, a 100% heavy bomber force. And this is what was begun after Munich. And in terms of money, in terms of industrial resources... This was going to absorb a lot more funds than pushing Fighter Command up to 800 aircraft, uh, on top of which some of the the specifics of building up Fighter Command were
2: not very impressive at all. And when we're meaning heavy bombers, they're not necessarily the heavy bombers that we, we come to know by 1942. The definition of a heavy is what a Manchester isn't it? it it's not what we would then see much later with the four-engined ones so at this initial point it, it's not exactly heavy heavy because you find medium heavy and there's yeah. heavy is used a lot but heavy is not necessarily heavy that is a terrible question but I hope you get what I mean
1: yeah uh, absolutely you yeah, know there, there is this great vagueness of nomenclature I mean battles and Blenheims are called medium bombers to distinguish them from hearts, even though we all think of them as light bombers. But no, in practice, the Stirlings, Halifaxes and Manchester stroke Lancasters were heavy bombers, with bomb loads up to £14,000. In practice, the, the Stirling was the one that was nominally a heavy bomber, but that was because it was a four-engine design. Um, the two-engine designs were pretty much as capable. It's just that uh, because the, the Rolls-Royce Vulture engine failed, uh, they ended up being four-engine bombers. So with, with hindsight, the the, the the bomber force that the RAF wanted to build up post-Munich was, in practice, a four-engine bomber force.
2: And yet as they're building this up, they're again projecting what they believe the war is going to be. So that's why we see aircraft like the Defiant come out. They're expecting bomber streams to be coming over the North Sea. So therefore, without fighter escorts, they could have something that is specifically designed to position itself and then shoot as opposed to get in and get out very quickly you start seeing these designs come through and i think i've phrased this section the good the bad and the ugly of interwar procurement because you know, we've mentioned blattle you've got defiance hayford which is just a mess before you even get to things like manchester which has its own inherent issues but is able to get out of it
1: i, th- I think conceptually
2: the defiant was the worst The Royal Flying
1: Corps had done terribly well with a two-seat fighter, the Bristol fighter, and that spirit rather continued. I thought, well, maybe the the most efficient fighter is one with, in the jargon, free guns. So there was a huge head of steam in in favour of turret-armed fighters. You get papers in which it said, well, the whole fighter force will be a turret fighter force. And it was, it was intended that uh, defiance would make up a quarter or one-third of fighter command. It's just that perhaps fortunately there were technical problems getting the, the defiant in the air, so it was a smaller disaster than it might have been. But no, I'm afraid that Sir Cyril Newell, the, the, the chief of the air staff from 1937 onwards, was a very poor judge of what aeroplanes were going to be. And uh, I think these, his fate in the, the Defiant was possibly the worst of his mistakes.
2: Is there also an element of keeping industry going? Much, much that happened is- Post war, as well, that there's a lot of companies with a lot of people employed. The pie has to be shared out amongst many of them. Hence, you have so many different engine types. You have lots of weird and wonderful aircraft coming through, which are there to bolster numbers as opposed to actually be a forward thinking aircraft that could go on to being frontline.
1: Well, it's, it's a permanent problem in any kind of weapons program. You always lose numbers switching to new designs and so if you're saying we need x planes quickly the way to do that is keep existing designs in production uh and in the case of the the royal air force's rearmament uh the big beneficiary for want of a better word of that was the fairy battle because it was everything was jigged up there was a shadow factory coming on coming on stream that was the easy way to keep to keep the the numbers growing, uh, and of course, factories don't keep going idle all the time. There is no labour conscription, so um, if the workers don't have work, they will move on to something else. So uh, you've got it's also not so much a paradox, but conflict between keeping up production of existing types and producing new new types, and partly because bomber command was. Heading towards an all heavy bomber force, that's to uh, say planes which weren't which only f- had their maiden flights in nineteen thirty nine and were not going to enter service in any number till nineteen forty one at the very earliest. you got what were in practice interim types um Battles, Blenheims, Hamden's and Whitley's produced. Um, It was almost a piece of good luck that you had the Wellington, which was in that kind of uh, semi-interim bracket, which was a pretty decent aeroplane and was able to do good work, not spectacular work, but good work right up till
2: 1943. So the subtitle of your book is Poor Strategy and Miscalculation. But what I suppose let's let's sort of start looking towards what they did get right in this period, because one of the things that's always fascinated me is that there's no truly clean paper design coming into service with the RAF that hadn't been started pre-war. So was there anything done well during this period that allowed them to at least set the groundworks for the types that, you know, the the public would come to know and love going forward.
1: The Spitfire and Hurricane were extremely good aircraft. The Hurricane was still well up to it in 1941 and the Spitfire all the way through. So those were correct designs. Though, again, I must point point out that um, Chief of the Air Staff, Newell, was thinking that they, they were obsolete if or well certainly hurricanes were obsolete in nineteen thirty eight already so that was that was a bit of a misjudgment um and uh the heavy he,
2: he did he did have cam whispering in his ear to do a new fighter oh
1: yes that and that meant... was the, that 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 was that was coming along that was that was the typhoon and the uh the tornado were already there but it it was just that his his judgment of how fast fighters were going to
2: become obsolete was was incorrect I have to work the typhoon into every single one of my podcasts. Yeah, it's, well, it's, everybody's having a drink now.
1: Yeah. And yes, the typhoon had been planned before the war, but its success as, in the modern jargon, a strike aircraft w- was just not there. Uh, plus, plus, of course, there was no thought of using uh, single-engine, single-seat aircraft in that kind of role. It was just a happy chance that the typhoon was able to do that job. In the same way that the the P-51 was able to do the tactical reconnaissance job. The other types which did work to do their job were, I'm going to call them the heavy bombers, which were 19... I'll call them the 1936 generation of heavy bombers, because... Uh, when they'd migrated into being four-engined Halifaxes and the Avro Lancaster, were very, very good strategic night bombers. The drawback was that they were only really available in 1942 and only really effective in 1943, which was a bit late for what Britain needed.
2: Could we say that those issues for when they came on stream in 1942-43 were laid with the decisions made in the period that you discuss in your book that there was a little bit of unfocus there and that led to a a much elongated development to get to where they were going the
1: one real blind alley was the rolls royce vulture if the rolls royce vulture had worked you'd have had effective manchesters and twin-engined halifaxes possibly uh, in the front line in 1941 but that was just if you like the chance of Gambling very heavily on a sing- single-engine type, and the concept of the four-engine bomber was was perfectly sound. The, the pro- problem was that the beneficiary was the Short Sterling, which was not a very good aircraft. So yes, the, the right decisions were taken, or correct decisions were t- were taken. But a, they took a long time to implement, and b, it was a lot more difficult. That, of course, is aiming off for the whole question of uh, bomber technology, uh, where bomber command was light years behind fighter command, uh, where, again, to go back to uh, an earlier point, there was very much a single piece of hardware um, mentality about things. Uh, All you needed was the aeroplane to do the job, and that was it. Uh, the fact that you're going to need navigational aids, bombing aids, and so on and so forth, was just just not present. And it took hard and bitter experience uh, till any of that start, started being developed.
2: The focus that I found interesting in your book is Fighter Command's building this integrated system, and yet the RAF as a whole isn't looking to the infrastructure that's going to support the entire force. Um, you talk about the, the sort of navigation systems being built in the states and, and on the continent, but there's not any of that happening here in the UK. And I've, I've that never had really twigged in my mind before that there's these isolated elements of control being built, but as a whole, there's this gap that should have been quite clear, but wasn't because of the the tools being. Looked at with such force. There was one one particular
1: issue which was work allocation within aircraft. Um, the the head of Bomber Command, Sir Edgar Lud- Ludlow Hewitt, had an almost nautical approach to it. That the captain of the aeroplane was responsible for every aspect of its performance, and therefore he was responsible for its navigation, which is only partly true. What it did contribute to was the fact that the it took a long time to develop aircraft navigation as a separate speciality that had to be performed by individuals with specific training and pretty much pilot-level competence and abilities, which came very very quickly once, once the war had broken out and once it became obvious what was what was needed but the um the thinking or even exercise experience that would have showed that that was the way forward before the war was just not present
2: and the thought of a non-commissioned officer in command of an aircraft would have had him kept awake at night wouldn't it
1: Absolutely, and uh, that was, the, was the great, great thing that whilst you did have some sergeant pilots before the war, once they'd done their flying duties, they reverted to the rank of corporal, albeit with with wings on their chest. Uh, it, it was possibly not as high high bound as uh, the the army in terms of its deference to the British class system, but. Uh,
2: you can't ignore that as a disadvantage that it faced. So in, in to wrap up, and I have just to say, once again, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. What do you think the outcome of this was? What foundations were built for this to take the RAF forward into their, their next procurement as, as it leapt forward? Did they learn any lessons or did they make the same mistakes again?
1: Like almost any, anything in war, it's combat that is the great teacher. And it was only when the RAF was called on to support the, the Army and the, the Royal Navy in the Middle East from 1941 onwards that you started getting the real education of how, in how air power is actually a much more flexible military tool uh, than was hardwired into the RAF between the wars. And that, that was the great lesson that, that that was learned and and finally applied but it took time and actual combat to get that far
2: i would like to thank adrian for joining me on the damcasters i found his book insightful and challenging to some of my opinions what could have been a very dry analysis of interwar procurement is made very readable and i hope as you've heard today adrian does not hold back that it also has caused quite a stir online is something to be celebrated too as a good Twitter fight is always enjoyable. Rearming the RAF for the Second World War, poor strategy and miscalculation, is out now from Pen and Sword, who kindly provided me with a copy for my chat with Adrian. As always, you can grab a copy at the Boney Abroad podcast bookshop, for which there's a link below in the description. 10% of every purchase goes towards supporting the podcast and supporting independent bookshops. Next time on the Damcasters, we are joined by Esther Obby of Air Corps Library, who is in the process of digitizing and conserving the most incredible cache of original North American aviation drawings and schematics. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you will join us for it. If you've enjoyed the podcast and would like to support us going forward, you can via Patreon. Tiers start from just £3 a month plus the VAT, and you'll get all of our episodes on a dedicated feed ad free before they head out into the wider world. Not only that, you'll get a hand scrolled thank you card from me, which is designed by the great Mark Waters at aircraft.co.uk. There's a Discord channel where you can chat as well. And all of this you can find on Patreon if you head to patreon.com forward slash the All one word. Thank you for your support. And until next time, do take care of yourselves. The Damcasters is hosted and produced by Matt Bone, and it is a Boney Abroad podcast production. To check out our other podcasts, head to boneyabroad.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.